Welcome to the Terry and Jesse show. I understand we have Jesse on a phone line rather than on the screen. So, Jess, I'll do some introductions, and I just want to welcome everybody to the Terry and Jesse show. I am the Lebanese lover of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the Lebanese lover of Our Lady and my partner. Now, Jesse Romero, the, the Latin lover Amen. of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Latin lover of Our Lady, Terry, and just want to remind people that yeah. it is the holy name of Jesus month. <laughs> say his name often. Amen. Find any excuse to say the name of Jesus because boy, oh boy, that's the name given to us in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, the only name by which we must be saved. Well said. We've got a great show ahead of us, but I keep getting uh, texts from people at saying, Terry, what is this devotion during the week you mentioned? Uh, and I'm just going to mention it again. Every day of the week, the church has a particular devotion regarding our faith. Like Sunday, obviously, is the Blessed Trinity. We attend Mass. Monday, today, the souls in purgatory. Tuesday, guardian angels. Wednesday is devoted to St. Joseph. Thursday, the Holy Eucharist. For obvious reasons, Friday, the passion and death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Saturdays, dedicated to Our Lady. So I'll repeat that another time. But people always ask me, what am I specifically going to be praying for each day? Well, the church has given that to us. Jess, we have a great show because we're going to be talking about a radical proposal for the UCCB's Eucharistic revival. Yeah, we're gonna, it's not that radical. You know what's radical? It's to the root cause, radical, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. we're going to talk about the challenges we have in our church for people to, in their belief of the real presence of Christ and the Eucharist. We're going to spend two segments on that. Also, we're going to be talking about a missing, missing ingredient regarding the Eucharist, uh, the appeal to beauty in our churches. That's going to be a good one, too. But, Jess, I have some good news now, before the, I should say before the actual soul food of the gospel, I have three things that inspired me. One, the Florida governor, he's putting his agency out. He's warning pharmaceuticals not to dispense abortion pills that President Biden is asking the whole country to do. So he's, he's stepping up and saying, not on my watch, not in my, di- in my uh, not diocese, in my state. And I, 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 really recommend, I really commend the governor of Florida because he's standing up for life, and I thank him for that. Also, Jess, uh, this is good, too. A Virginia governor, uh, Glenn Youngkin, he endorsed a proposal bill banning abortion at 15 weeks. More and more sta- standing up for life. And I think this is good news, too, Jesse. You're going to say, what do you mean it's good news on this one? Here, the third set of classified documents found at Joe Biden's home. And I believe that this is the beginning of the end of Joe Biden because, uh, you know, let's be honest about it. Not political, just a fact. When when a president of the United States can take documents and declassify them, that's what the president can do. But when Joe Biden was the vice president, he took classified documents. He can't he can't do that. And so uh, if they don't prosecute him for this again, it's going to be hypocrisy because what they did to Trump was 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 wrong. And if they don't. Uh, prosecute Biden on this, it'll be pretty obvious that we're not living under the same set of rules. Yeah, the only problem is that we've only got, uh, the good guys only have control of the House, yeah. not the Senate or the executive office. Uh, so it's going to be, it's going to be a long shot to to find to find him guilty because again, they, uh, they still have most of the levers of power in Washington, the left. Uh, also, Terry... Uh, Give me some more uh, news, Drew. Yeah, some more news. Uh, Governor DeSantis... Yes. He he cows the National Hockey League, the racist ad. Yeah, <laughs> the it. National Hockey League reversed course last week over a job fair, 
after Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis warned them that it was discriminatory and would not be tolerated in the state of Florida. What did the, what did the National Hockey League do? They posted a job and they called for diverse job seekers and stated in their in their uh, look in their uh, ad it said quote participants must be 18 years of age or older based in the US and identify as female, black, Asian, Pacific Islander, oh. Hispanic, Latino, indigenous, LGBTQIA <laughs> and or a person with a disability. So uh yeah, he came down on them and Good. they backed off also. Biden is bringing facial recognition to airports. I heard that, yeah. The Biden administration in December began rolling out technology that allows airline passengers to have their faces scanned at checkpoints rather than handing over a driver's license or a boarding pass. The facial scanners have generated controversy from both ends of the political spectrum over privacy and civil rights concerns. Countries like China and Russia use facial recognition technology to track their citizens, said Representative Jim Jordan earlier this month. (laughs) And And Jim Jordan said, do you trust Joe Biden's TSA to use it as well? No. Uh, the question is, I don't. I don't. Also, uh, talking about the false religion of the peace over in Middle East, that's a term that George Bush came up with Islam. It's not, it's not a religion of peace. A Nigerian priest was burned alive. Mm. A Catholic priest was burned to death on Sunday after bandits set fire to his parish rectory in northern Nigeria. Hmm, I wonder if they were Mormons or... Uh, uh, not or, northern uh, Nigeria. They're all yeah. Muslims, brother. Okay. The body of Father Isaac Aki was found among the charred parish building of Saints Peter and Paul Catholic Church on January 15th, according to the Catholic Diocese of Minna, Nigeria. May he rest in peace. Amen. God have mercy on his soul. Amen. And Jesse, Jeez. I just want to, before we get to the good news of the gospel, I just want to thank your brother, Jesse, Johnny, who was at the evangelization conference over the weekend. And we have some people here in our studio that are here from New York that came for the conference. And we just had a great day. Uh, people can still get all the talks by going to vmpr.org. They're being streamed there. And uh, the, uh, the, we had the Anglican Ordinariate Mass at Confessions Before Mass. Uh, people just got fed spiritually, intellectually. It was a great day, and I just want to thank all of you who made that special day possible. Terry, did, did Johnny share the story of oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of uh, standing uh, I, up I, against uh, you, 100... And, can I tell uh, you? I yeah. asked him to say it. He wasn't going <laughs> to, and I twisted his arm like I twist your arm a lot of times. Johnny, Johnny, you got to tell that story. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. He said the same thing you would say. <laughs> oh, yeah, Terry, you're right. I'll say it. So, you know, he was, and people said all of it during the conference, he's just like his brother Jesse. I said, yeah, man, he fired up the crew. I got so many texts from people saying, man, Johnny got me all fired up. And I said, well, good, that's what we do. We're trying to get people to fall deep yes, in love with Jesus yes. Christ, and Johnny does that. Yes, Johnny, you, myself, anybody who anybody who we try to influence, Terry, we're trying to get them to help people fall. It's, it's that simple. That's, it. that's what we're all about. Yep. That's yep. exactly what we're all about. Yep. Yeah. Well, let's get some soul food if we're ready for the gospel. Yes, sir. Uh, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Amen. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. Mm-hmm. The disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, mm-hmm. and, the, and of the Pharisees were accustomed to fast. People came to Jesus and objected. Why do the, do the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Jesus answered them. 
Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus is referring to himself here, by the way. Mm -hmm. But the days will come when the bridegroom, this is Jesus, is taken away from them. He's talking about his death and resurrection. And then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of shrunken cloth in an old cloak. If he does, its fullness pulls away the new from the old mm -hmm. and the tear gets worse. Likewise, no one pours out new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the skins are ruined. Rather, new wine is poured into fresh wineskins. Yep. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So it's pretty obvious that the bridegroom here is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses marital imagery to reveal his divinity. And his words here recall several Old Testament passages that, de that depict Yahweh as a groom wedded to Israel. This is in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea. But the New Testament now transfers this covenant relationship to Christ and his divine spouse, which is the church. So in the Old Testament, Yahweh was married to Israel. The New Testament, Christ is married to the church. Saint covenant language. Also, Lord, the Lord talks about that they cannot fast. Why? Because fasting was symbolizing, it symbolizes mourning and separation. Mm -hmm. So it would be inappropriate while Jesus is alive and present among the disciples to fast. But, uh, but, but we know that also the tradition of the church is that we as Catholic Christians, we fast before celebrating the liturgy. Why? Because Jesus Christ is going to come down in word and in sacraments, specifically on the altar. And so the arrival of Jesus Christ, it makes it a time of feasting. That's what he's telling them. Man. You know, I'm here, so feast right now. But when the divine bridegroom gives himself in love to his bride, communion with Christ in the Eucharist, it's a foretaste of the heavenly liturgy that we're going to experience in heaven. Also, in reference to the his comment about the old wineskins, saying that the old covenant has become like an old garment and old wineskins. And the new covenant can neither be poured into its brittle skins. He says that the fasting and the anticipation of the old covenant must give way to the feasting and celebration of the new covenant that Jesus brings into the world. When he leaves and before his second coming, from the moment of his ascension to heaven up until the second coming, yes, as fasting in anticipation for the second coming of Christ. Well, Sam, when we come back, we'll get Fulton Sheen. Great quote today that ties right into what Jess. That's why Jess and I can say we're too blessed to be stressed. We're too anointed to be disappointed. And if hope was money, we'd be billionaires. Stay with us, family. We're going to be also talking about a radical proposal to help people fall deep in love with Jesus and the Holy Eucharist. And we want the bishop to listen to what we have to say. Stay with us, family. We'll be right Great. Welcome back. Jess is with us uh, here at the Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'd like to bring the smartest guy into the room right now, Archbishop. Oh, Sheena had. Jesse was talking about introducing people to Christ. Well, here's what Sheena has to say. You want a perfect life and a perfect truth 
and a perfect love. Yeah, we all want that. Nothing short of the infinite satisfies you. And you ask, and, and to ask you to be satisfied with less would be to destroy your nature. Why do you want life, truth, and love unless you were made for them? How could you enjoy the fractions unless there were a whole? So bottom line is, even the people who are not even looking for God, they really are, and they just don't know it, Jess. They want happiness. And I got to tell you, the happiness that Jesus Christ offers is outside of this world. It is outstanding because for all eternity, we can be with God. And that's what we have to offer here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Jess, what do we got going for our next topic? Terry, the next topic is, is the most important topic in the Catholic Church. And uh, it doesn't seem like it's getting getting any better because the bishops miss it. They're just blind to the solution. <clears throat> Father John Pericone yep. gives a four simple changes that we can do that would bring a Eucharistic revival uh, instead of these multi-million dollar programs that, that benefit us nothing. Right. Here's a radical proposal for the USCCB's Eucharistic Revival. Four simple changes could be a game changer I'm, I'm completely. With I'm with yeah. him. And so, uh, let's... Uh, let's hear when, it. Yeah. It, there was a 2020 Pew Research study. Yep. And Terry and me, we've shared the study over and over again. Yep. That almost 70% of the people that were polled, Catholics said that they do not believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. This is, uh, and if you just glance at the average parish receiving Holy Communion in most Catholic parishes, you can say, eh, yeah, I can see that. Yep, I can see that. You don't need to be trained, a trained phenomenologist, to appreciate the importance of symbolic acts in man's self-disclosure. Uh, when, we, when we talk about the presence of the Holy Eucharist, in America right now, when you look at the average parish, this is a damning sign, Terry, because not it's not only the absence of, of, of rudimentary piety, but of a withered belief in the doctrine itself. Yeah. One flows from the other as certainly as day follows by That's night, right. as That's we right. say orthopraxy leads to orthodox, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Exactly. If a Catholic shows as much attention to the Holy Eucharist as he does to collecting his order at Starbucks, something <laughs> is awry. <laughs> That's that, when I read that the first time, Jesse, I chuckled too. Yeah, and you know, Jess, just to make a note, for 45 years, this is my 45th year where I've been active as an evangelist in the Catholic Church. Uh, and, and why do I say that? I ask people, every parish I go to, I will ask people, so tell me what you believe about the Holy Eucharist. And I said this to Jess over the years. Jess, yeah. about 90% of the people anecdotally that I talk to have no clue. I remember, and I'll just give this story. Jess and I went to Montana, in a small parish. See if he can remember this, Jess. Oh, yeah. We were there with your wife, and uh, we were doing a parish mission. Mm-hmm. And a guy came up to us after the mission. Jesse just taught on the Holy Eucharist. He's an older guy, and he's in tears. And he goes, Jesse, Jesse, thank you for reaffirming the belief on the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Well, well, for years here, we've had missions and they consistently don't teach that. And that, you know, it's a symbol. It's not Jesus' real body. And you just said it wasn't, that it was, the, you know, the perennial teachings of the church. Thank you for coming to Montana to tell us this because we haven't heard this in years. And you're looking at the dude going, hey, God bless you, bro. I'm, I mean, this is the deposit of faith. I'm not going to tell you anything different. 
Remember that? Very, yeah, and the priest there, he was a modernist. Oh, I won't go into that. He, he, he we, told us, he told us, <laughs> he was nice though. He was a nice, nice guy. He said, you, by the way, I don't agree with anything that you yeah. and Terry are saying this <laughs> weekend. That. He said, but my parishioners wanted you here. Yeah. And these, these are some of my most faithful parishioners. So that's why you're here. But just so you know, yeah, I don't me. agree with anything you guys are saying today. Yeah. And I and won't what, go into all the things we went there, but it was one of those <laughs> memorial days. I actually took a picture are you ready, folks? I'll just be honest with you, because we, we, we do well even when we deal with modernism. He's got a picture with the bishop, okay? And Jess and Anita and myself, they took us to some uh, famous spot out there in Montana. And he's got his shorts on, bright-colored orange shorts with a bright red shirt, and he's put his arm up like he's building a muscle, and he's showing off his physique. And the guy, let's just be honest, Jesse, he, he looked like— uh, he looked like, Terry looked like a porky pig. Yeah, <laughs> and and so we were nice yeah. to him, but I, but to be honest with you, and this is getting off the topic, but you see what Jess and I did? I talked to the bishop about the circumstances at that parish because Jess and I felt morally obligated that we got to let the bishop know this dude is not, you know, orthodox, and what you do, bishop, is your business, but we got to tell you X, Y, and Z. Have a great day. And we did that. Continue. That's right. Yeah, we just got so off. The, but I had to share that. Yeah, story. the American bishops seem to have noticed this alarming anomaly in the past year. <laughs> Odd that they should have detached this, detected this doctrinal collapse so recently, since it's been glaringly evident for over half a century. It's rather like a man being bitten by a shark and only scream, <laughs> screaming an hour funny. later. <laughs> Clearly, this crumbling of the central dogma of the Catholic Church yes. had its con- conspicuous antecedents. Yes. Antecedents supported by carefully planned strategies, all of them gestating among the theological grandees for decades. So many now forgotten laid deep the foundations for the denuded Catholic faith now so ubiquitous. To name only a a few. Stay away from this guy, Edward Skilabek. He was a Dominican, and his attenuation of grace through the sacraments. Carl Rahner, another modernist Stay away from him. And his supernatural, existential, to say nothing of his iconoclastic article, how to receive a sacrament and mean it. Uh, the whole of the Concilium, these were the liberals right after Vatican II that yeah. formed a group called the Concilium. And the Sacramental Theology of the Theological Society of America, 1965. Yep. This is hardly an exhaustive list, but it does suggest the formidable momentum that set down the pillars upon which the present crisis rests right now in the Catholic Church. Jesse, let, this, Jesse yeah. before you continue, at that same year, 1965, Pope Paul VI, during the Second Vatican Council, on the date, I'll give you the date, it was the 4th of September, 3rd of September, 1965, feast day of Pope Pius X, the Pope for the Holy Eucharist, and he, it was his third year of being Pope, and he had to write a document, and I have it in my hands, Mysterium uh, Fide, which is the mystery of faith. It was all on the Holy Eucharist, reaffirming uh, the transubstantiation and condemning transfinalization, transsignification, all this garbage that these guys were coming up with. These modern modernists. And Paul VI knew the same thing that we're talking about, that there's, there was going to be some modernists coming out saying, oh, the Vatican II Council said this, which it didn't. Okay, but they went out and proclaimed, and Paul VI said, I'm going to beat you to the punch. I'm going to put out and reaffirm what the church has always taught, those perennial teachings. So thank you, Paul VI, for that. Continue, Jess. Yeah, uh, we're we're talking about uh, the the fourfold plan that there's a priest from the back east. He wrote a, 
He said if the bishops did these four things, yes, it, it, the church would be back, you know, running full full sheen ahead, as we say here. <laughs> yeah. So right. he, let me let me go right to the the yeah. important part. It says so thorough was yeah. this transformation of Eucharistic theology that well-meaning Catholics now confidently call the Mass a meal. Exactly. And the Holy Eucharist, bread of fellowship. Give me a break. Under this logic, it is quite hostile to say nothing of, of actionable to refuse any man or woman access to, ho- to the Holy Eucharist. Oh, my God. Not a few bishops growl at a priest even publicly repeating the traditional requirements for reception of Holy Communion. So very unwelcoming, you see. <laughs> This alarming doctrinal breakdown entrenched itself so deeply that even that it even dictated new architectural forms for churches, confirming the Marshall McLuhan principle. And what is that principle? The medium is the message. Exactly. In other words, make, make give them modernist churches, give them modernist liturgy, round table stuff. You know. Yeah, you'll give them. You'll get modernist Catholics. It's yeah. simple. This this helpful backdrop brings us back to the bishops. The Pew survey was a bit of cold water <laughs> splashed in their faces. I, you think? Yeah, or, or, or some faces, that something must be done. Alas, now they're launching a three-year Eucharistic revival culminating in a 2024 Eucharistic Congress. Every Catholic prays that it succeeds. But towards that end, some proposals should be made. At first glance, they may appear radical. Indeed, they are. But only because they stand so starkly against the blighted landscape of current Eucharistic practice. So, Terry and Mia, we're going to go through some of the four proposals yep. that may even seem to be antediluvian <laughs> as to be laughable. I know. It's but this <laughs> further proves the point exactly. that Eucharistic doctrine has become so debased yeah, it's not that pretty. such things that, you know, that, that were quite normal not too long ago today almost seem taboo. Yeah, it's not brain like surgery, Jess. Words. Yeah, it's yeah. not brain surgery. It's really quite simple. We're going to go through those. Go ahead, Jess. We'll go for the, do the All first right, first one. Tabernacles return to the center of every church. It's an interesting how liturgists commandeered this movement of the tabernacle from the center of every church to the side. And some of them, you can't even find them outside. You don't know where they brought our Lord. They appeal to Vatican II. That Whenever someone says Vatican II says this, don't believe it. Read the documents. Right. They said, we appeal to Vatican II, and they preferred tool and, 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 and frosting upon the church novelties, and uh, which configure their faith. In point of fact, here's what the 1983 canon law says. Folks, read them this. The tabernacle in which the Eucharist is regularly reserved should be placed in, in a part of the church that is prominent, not the closet, cons- uh, conspicuous, beautifully decorated, and suitable for prayer. Canon 938.2. Jesse, do we need to say more? I mean, that's so obvious. I'll read the last thing, and then we'll yeah. get to the second. Only those of ill-disposed agenda would interpret the directive as anything more than a maintenance, a maintenance of status quo of churches before the council, period. Any sidelining of the tabernacle transmits the unquestionable message of sidelining Jesus Christ himself. No amount of theological, liturgical, I call it, I call it gymnastics, uh, can conceal this, right? Liturgists may not abide by the inescapable 
uh, incapable laws of natural symbol, but ordinary folks do. See, you know what the difference between a liturgist and a terrorist is? You can negotiate with a terrorist. These liturgist guys, Jesse, they just ram ride things through, and it's just wrong. And I think we need to stand up and say, let's bring our Lord back. And I remember in 1976 at the Eucharistic Congress, Bishop Sheen said this, Jess. We, we're, we're, we're replacing the Blessed Sacrament with a tin god. They put that chair in the center of the church, and that's where the priest sits. He says, get rid of him. Jesus Christ needs to be in the center of the church. Thank you, Bishop Sheen, for clarity. Hey, Jess, we yeah. got to take a quick break. We come back. Yep. Let's get that second proposal. I know I'm excited, but what more could we not be excited about the Holy Eucharist? The Vatican yeah. II Council said it's the source and summit of the Christian life. Let's get it right, man. Wow. That's Stay right. with us here on the Terry and Jesse Show on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We're talking about the most important sacrament, the Holy Eucharist. Stay with us. We're back to Terry and Jesse's show. We're talking about four things that would bring a Eucharistic revival <laughs> like uh, like nobody's business. Man. Written by a theologian in the East Coast. I've met him a few times. Good priest. Uh, named Father Pericone. He's uh, very, he he's, uh, celebrates the Latin Mass and the Novus Ordo Mass. But Dang. he said that the, the, the Latin Mass has, has, uh, has really uh, re- rebooted his priesthood. And really renewed his priesthood. And now he says, I've taken all of those particulars of the Latin Mass into the Novus Ordo Mass to give a very reverent Novus Ordo Mass. Excellent. The second proposal, he says, Father Pericone, he says, abolish communion in the hand. This smuggled early 60s practice was an undisguised rupture with a millennial tradition, which deeply implanted a reflexive understanding of the Holy Eucharist with effortless ease. The traditional practice conveyed to both unlettered and gifted alike the ineffable sacredness of the sacrament of the altar. No words necessary, no lengthy explanations required, thus the immediacy of the symbolic act informing, uplifting, and impassioning. The church alone plums the power of the symbol with a repertoire of ritual acts, all of it accomplished with theatricality, yet embodying every element of authentic drama. What emerges is a unique wedding of man's highest capacity for poetry threaded with the divine strokes of the third person. The early 60s, that wretched time, mm-hmm. rightly deserving what W.H. Auden's epithet of the 1930s, quote, that low and dishonest decade, close quote, ushered in the demise of the reverential and critical communion on the tongue that can be traced to a, f- a restive European theological elite bent on retooling the faith of the church. He's talking about uh, Archbishop Bunini. They made fatuous appeals to the sacredness of the whole body and the innovation as an ancient practice. Those arguments were mendacious at their, fir- at their first showing, but by this time have, 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 have so outlived their shelf life that mere mention should cause embarrassment. It's so alarmed, it, 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 it's deadly spread, so alarmed Pope Paul VI that he promulgated memorali. Domini in 1969. Here he confronted the damaging practice illicitly introduced and he ruled that it should cease. But of course, nobody listens when the Pope writes something orthodox. He says, with a deepening understanding of the truth of the Eucharistic mystery, 
of its power and of the presence of Christ in it, there came a greater feeling of reverence towards the sacrament and a deeper humility was felt to be demanded when receiving it. Thus the custom was established of the minister placing a particle of consecrated bread on the tongue of the communicant. This method of distributing Holy Communion must be retained, Pope Paul VI says, taking the present situation of the church in the entire world into account, not merely because it has many centuries of tradition behind it, but especially because it expresses the faithful's reverence for the Eucharist. But once again, when Pope Paul VI got things right, they just didn't listen to exactly. him. Exactly. When Pope Paul VI went along the modernists, they were all in. Oh, yeah. Well, just think about this, Jesse, and we've talked about this before. Martin Luther started communion in the hand when he broke from the church to help people disregard the real presence. So they had an example, and that was Martin Luther. And also, the indult that came into the church, Jess and I have covered this many times over the years, and how it was disobedience that brought communion in the hand. And there's like five requirements for this indult to be used, and nobody respects them. Like, for example, is there an outward sign of reverence before you receive Holy Communion? No. Do they actually believe in the real presence? No. So this was an abuse that actually has been going on for about 45 years in the United States. I think it was 1977, because I, I remember out of, when I got out of high school, they started this Communion in the Hand, and uh, it's been destroying the belief in the real presence. As a matter of fact, I won't say who, but we have a you know, a good friend of ours here in the L.A. Diocese, and um, the pastor um, will not allow the First Holy Communion kids to receive in the hand. Unbelievable. He's making it so that they receive on the tongue, kneeling down, and he believes that they're re- they, this will teach the young children what they're receiving much more than standing and in the hand. And I Absolutely. happen to agree with him. Continue, Jess. Third proposal, eliminate extra... <laughs> yeah, this is a big... Uh, you mean you big, mean Mrs. Big Romero big. and Mrs. Barber? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. get them out. But, but, but yeah, but they never, but they never uh, have, have done that. We so. never... Are you kidding yep. me? Eliminate extraordinary ministers of the Holy Eucharist. Yeah. Again, to the common Catholic mind of today, <laughs> a suggestion that such as this sounds like the abolition of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, I know. Only demonstrating how pervasive the distorted understanding of the Holy Eucharist is. The fact that few Catholics refer to extraordinary ministers <clears throat> is further proof of the of the tight oh, grip yeah. of doctrinal understanding. That's right. In the 1997 document promulgated by the Sacred Congregation for Liturgy and the Discipline of the Sacraments. It is made clear the extraordinary nature of allowing laymen to distribute Holy Communion. Keenly aware of, of the easy slippage into doctrinal chaos, the Holy Father notes, he says, quote, in, and this is under John Paul II, mm-hmm. in some local situations, generous intelligent solutions have been sought to the short of, of priests. The legislation of the Code of Canon Law has all itself provided new possibilities which, however, must be corrected, applied, so as not to fall into ambiguity of considering as ordinary and normal solutions that were meant for extraordinary situations in which priests were lacking or in short supply. The, close quote. These dicasteries were clearly adhering to St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa, where he says, quote, whether the dispensing of the sacrament belongs to the priest alone. Here's what he said. St. Thomas, the dispensing of Christ's body belongs to the priest alone. For three reasons. First, because he consecrates as in the person of Christ. But as Christ consecrated his body at the supper, he also gave it to others to be, part, to be partaken of by them. 
accordingly as the consecration of Christ's body belongs to the priest, so likewise does the dispensing belong to him. Secondly, because the priest is the appointed intermediary between God and the people, hence, as it belongs to him to offer the people's gifts to God, so it belongs to him to deliver consecrated gifts to the people. Thirdly, because out of reverence towards the sacrament, nothing touches it but what is consecrated, hence the cor corporal and the chalice are consecrated, and likewise the priest's hand for touching the sacrament. Hence, it is, not it is not lawful for anyone else to touch it except from necessity, for instance, if it were fall to fall upon the ground or else in some other case of emergency. You know, Jeff, I like telling stories about this. There's a story about a, a nun going to Africa, and she's at one of the liturgies, and she goes, um, you know, there's a big big liturgy taking place, and she says, you know, I act as a uh, minister of the Eucharist for you, Father, at the Mass. And the priest says, you know what, a sister, uh, my people don't mind having me hand out Holy Communion only because they're, they're in no rush. They're, that means they get to pray more. So it's not, we don't have that mentality that you have in the States. And then the other one, the Anglican Ordinariate Mass that I go to, Jess, yeah. <clears throat> there are no extraordinary ministers of the Eucharist. Uh, we kneel down for communion. We have it only on the tongue, uh, intention. And uh, yeah, I mean, we have the body and blood of Jesus they, uh, we get. And this brings back a reverence. So I would agree totally. Absolutely. All right, next one, Jess. Fourth proposal. Reception of Holy Communion should always be kneeling. The last few years have seen a war waged on a few Catholics who follow this Christine interior logic of the Orthodox Catholic doctrine. Kneeling to receive Holy Communion and their furry they, to abolish kneeling, the innovators invoke the hollow excuse of uniformity and local custom. Even the most Catholic sees this for the naked dissembling, which it is. One stands to grab a free lunch, right? Not to receive the bread of angels. Good job. Pardon me, but this kind of sacrilegious makes the old guardian skin crawl. It's puzzlement that the same shepherds that perpetuated this is not veiled a demolition of the Eucharistic doctrine desired now to promote Eucharistic doctrine. Uh, attempting any longer to disguise the cause of all this belief. Let's just be honest with it, man. He makes a great says, This is on par of with the Wizard of Oz ordering Dorothy, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. <laughs> These analogies are spot yeah. on. Our yeah. good bishops have been unafraid in harboring radical gestures in the past, even when they jolted the faithful. Why not one more or four more? You know, Jesse, just before we end, I want to, Pope Benedict XVI in Rome only gave communion to people kneeling and on the tongue. I remember when he changed that. Uh, and I'll, I want to ask one more comment. Cardinal Seurat wanted to do these things like ad orientum as the prefix for the doctrine of the faith, and he got shut down after he said it would help with the reverence of the Mass. So unfortunately, we have people in higher places who don't agree with us. But you know what? You cannot agree with us, but I'll tell you what, Jesse— there's a reason people had a great respect for the Eucharist when it, when, when it was uh, when we received on the tongue, kneeling down, when we didn't have extraordinary ministers of the Holy Eucharist, and the tabernacle was in the center of the church. So I think Father John here is nailing it. The only thing you have to lose uh, from this is a crisis. In other words, if you implement these items he's talking about, 
I believe that we will bring back a Eucharistic revival in the church. Oh, the, Terry, uh, don't hold your breath. I, 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 don't, I don't think any, all four of these, maybe some of these may make I, it. I don't think any of them will make it. In, I'll be the, honest with you, Jeff. Well, let me, let, let, what do you think? You, do you think the bishops are going to force everybody to put the tabernacle in the center? What do you think? No, I don't. No, I don't think no. so. Okay, let's second one. You think the U.S. bishops are going to abolish communion in the hand? No. No, me neither. Okay, check that off. Uh, do you think the U.S. bishops are going to abolish ordinary ministers of holy communion? Of course communion? not. Of course okay. not. Uh, do you think the U.S. bishops are going Only. No, and Jesse, okay. we're all right. Then, then not, I'll tell you, no. nothing is going to get done with their million dollar exactly. Boondoggle. It's going to be a waste of money. Yeah, Eucharist. The the guy that's heading this. Yeah, he asked me. He goes, I'd like to take you around the country, along with several other people that were Good. choosing. Uh. <clears throat> And uh, some of the U.S. bishops say, Jesse Romero, uh-uh, he won't be speaking for us. Not a chance. And I'm not surprised. And remember, we're having our own Eucharistic revival. Bishop Athanasius Snyder, Jesse Romero. I've got Cardinal Burke on the list. And we'll be publishing that in a couple of <laughs> Sell people on the obvious. belief of the real presence of Christ. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. Jess, our Richard, our engineer, reminded me to tell one quick story of how bad catechesis is on the belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Mm. My pastor here at St. Christopher's in West Covina, California, 1987, so it's a long time ago. It didn't take long to get it weakened. And uh, this woman who was the extraordinary minister of the Eucharist was noticing at Holy Communion time we were running out of sacred hosts for the body, blood, soul of Jesus. And she decided to go into the sacristy and she got unconsecrated hosts out, break, broke them off the little cellophane wrapper and put them on a patent and brought them out to give out as Holy Communion. And Jesse, this is not, I'm, this is happening. People who are supposedly extraordinary ministers of the Eucharist they have no idea. So if people are going, I'm getting texts from people saying, aren't you a little over the top? No. I want to see. I want people to know that that's Jesus Christ. That's not a piece of bread. It's under the appearance of bread. All right, I'm done, Jess. Let's get on to the next topic. <laughs> the next topic is there's been an ingredient missing yeah. since the 1960s. Yeah. And that's an appeal to beauty. Oh, big time. Yeah. The... Catholics know, we know that the three transcendentals mm -hmm. that point us to God, because it comes from God, are goodness, truth, and beauty. Exactly. The transcendentals are those properties that are common to all beings, but as such, they go beyond or transcend. That's what's called transcendental. Right. They transcend individual characteristics. Since God is the origin of being and the only necessary being, he can be referred to in terms of these transcendentals that God is perfect goodness, truth, and beauty. Now, we as creatures possess a relative goodness, truth, and beauty, but only God possesses them in an absolute way. That is why creatures can be described as good, true, and beautiful, whereas only God is goodness itself, truth itself, and beauty itself. Mm -hmm. Among all creatures, 
men and angels are destined to spend eternity with God or apart from God, but mm-hmm. nonetheless in eternity. Mm-hmm. Indeed, this is why we were created to help us achieve this end. God placed within us this insatiable appetite for himself, which is goodness, beauty, and truth. Amen. And that's why St. Augustine said in the fourth century, we're made for thee, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. The appetite that humans have for God means that we crave goodness, we crave truth and beauty, and the need to experience all three. This is why I'm going to go back to my police days. Yes. This is why one of, the, one of the ways that we break men in jail, literally like break them and, 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 and cause them to obey and follow the rules, yeah. is we put them in solitary confinement in a, plit, in a pitch black dungeon room that's all cement, all cement walls. So there is no goodness. I mean, there's nothing. You're, you, there's four cement walls. And you get fed, there's about an inch underneath the, the, the door where we just slide the food underneath the tray. Mm-hmm. So there's no goodness or truth or beauty inside of a solitary confinement jail or prison. And men, within a couple of days, yes, officer, yes. You know, they, 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 they're respectful. They call you yes, sir. They're not spitting at you or <laughs> dropping F-bombs. Because even, even the, the wretched prisoner that's inside solitary confinement... He, his soul is calling out for goodness, beauty, and truth. And that's foreign to him, a black dungeon. And so uh, I want to get to the meat of this article where it says, unfortunately, this kind of beauty is lacking in modern society. That's what I highlighted. Yep. Yeah. It's been replaced by what some have called a cult of ugliness. So let's get into Look this. Look at our cult art. Of, uh, yeah, because, yeah, that this is the, the meat of the article. Go ahead, Jess, continue. In 2001, Dr. Anthony Branken gave a lecture about this very topic sponsored by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, known as TFP. In it, he argued that contemporary man is surrounded by so much ugliness, his capacity to identify something as ugly has been dulled. He, Father Branken said, quote, when I say that you live cheek by jowl with this ugliness i mean to say that in coming to in, in coming to and coming from this hall you are surrounded by miles and miles of unyielding ugliness mcdonald's and burger king sandwiched between amicos and tenements you do not mistake that for beauty but it's so common that you may no longer recognize it as specifically ugly yes you may never even make a mental note of the ugliness of all the malls with their false fronts and even falser interiors or the condominiums that are just as empty and sterile on the inside as they are on the outside. That's just how everything looks now. And of course, that's just for starters. For there is likewise in our world a spiritual ugliness, no less all pervasive then and somehow related to the visual ugliness all about us. Father Branken continues saying, now you might think that at least on Sunday, you could be rescued from all this visual and spiritual ugliness by going to church. But but ugliness is there too. For chances that your church has already been despoiled by modern Catholic barbarians who haven't even the artistic sense of the Unitarians who sit on on your town's historic preservation boards, this immersion in ugliness has detrimental effects on society. That's right. If the presence of man-made beauty reinforces the reality that God exists, 
and is reflected in the soul of man, the prevalence of ugliness asserts the opposite. Father Branken expressed this in these terms. The subliminal message in every confused and misshapen piece of modern architecture, art, music, or drama, like the L.A. Cathedral, by the way, <laughs> I'm saying that, I'm is that you. there is no God. Yeah. The, uh, the subliminal message in every deliberate mutilation of natural forms, in every tribute to physical and personal perversion, is that there's no God. Yeah. The subliminal message in every celebration of the weird and deathly is that there's no God. And the subliminal message is as surely the illuminated gospel of death as any culture could have ever, could have ever proclaimed by the virtue of its omnipresence in every aspect of modern life, we are constantly encouraged to accept this gospel of ugliness. Yeah, the God. So a society that possesses beauty reflects God, and one that rejects it also rejects God. That's right. This is a crucial point. This is why any solution to the modern revolutionary crisis that does not include filling society with beauty cannot hope to be permanent or sufficiently profound. Terry? Yes, yeah, I just want to mention, when you go into a church, the point of going in and seeing the sacred images, whether it's stained glass windows, the altar, statues of the Blessed Mother, St. Joseph, is to bring you, in a sense, out of the world and into the next world. And I think that if you ask yourself, did you go to the church today? Did that, do, did that accomplish it? If, if you say no, then you're probably in some, you have some gymnasium that also plays basketball and, and, and acts as a church on weekends. We, the reason I say this is we've become too much on the functionality when, rather than on the supernatural. This is what we call horizontalism rather than the vert, a vertical that goes towards God. And this is something that uh, is very well said when he says this, that once a society is filled with beauty, it will necessarily influence those in the society. This is the beauty... This is because beauty can act almost automatically on the soul. And this is what I've noticed, Jesse, when people come into a beautiful church and they're not even Catholic, man, their mouth drops. They go, wow, this is, this is outside of my ordinary time. Like and the Sacred need... Heart Chapel. Well, there you beautiful go. little, little chapel the there. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, we have that. Why? Because it's not the ordinary. It's the extraordinary times of, of, of life. We want to get into... Uh, the spirituality and beauty of the sacred beauty speaks to the soul. That's my point. Yes. Uh, there's a, a preferential option for beauty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that is cute. This begs the question, how many souls languishing under the cult of ugliness in contemporary society could benefit or even convert by being exposed to beauty? I'll share a little. Let me a little sidebar here. I read that C.S. Lewis was uh, an agnostic, and he said the way he converted to become a believer in God and embrace Christianity, he says he was converted not by the by, by truth, as that one book that Patrick Madrid wrote. He says he was converted by beauty. Yeah. C.S. Lewis says that he looked at, at at a you know walked over a hill and saw the sun rising. And just saw the beauty of yep. nature. Of course. He said, and that spoke to him in such a powerful way that yep. he knew without a doubt that there was a God. Yeah, Jesse, I got inundated with texts. One of the texts is a convert to the Catholic faith. She says, you and Jesse are speaking to my mind and my heart. 
I didn't leave Protestantism to find it in the Catholic Church. One trip to Italy, seeing all those beautiful old churches, convinced me of the beauty that exists only in the Catholic Church. And I have been taught the truth in receiving Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. He's either God or not. If he is God, then act like it. If he is not, go for a walk and enjoy nature. <laughs> wow! Thank you. That's so much. And so many other people are texting us. I think we hit a nerve today, Jess. And you know what, buddy? I think we did. I, I've yeah. been going to daily Mass since I was 14. I'm 66 years old today, or right now, as I stand in front of you. And I, I went to Holy Mass today. I, I can't even uh, tell people I, I'm so blessed to be able to fall in love with Jesus in the Eucharist. And that's what I think we need to do in the Catholic Church is when people are definitely in love with the Eucharist, everything else falls into place. Yeah, the U.S. bishops should, should hire you to go around the country oh, and yeah, do right. Eucharistic <laughs> revival talks uh, because you have more credibility than they do. Well, you because know what I would just you, say? You, you've, you've been a defender of the Holy Eucharist. Oh. That's been the, the, the very center of your apostolate ever since I met you yeah. uh, 30 years ago. Well, Jesse, I got to tell you, brother, that's what converts people. I don't, when, I, when we share the gospel, go into the church before the Blessed Sacrament. I've seen miracles take place before our Eucharistic King. And I'm going to encourage our listeners right now, because of reparation that needs to be made for our church right now, to especially once a week make a daily holy hour of power. And I know, Jess, you do that. I do that. I go before the Blessed Sacrament daily. Why? Because I know that's our Eucharistic King. I mean, that's the God. I mean, has it get any better? No. So anyhow, I hope this I hope this show helped you have a revival into your love for Jesus and the Blessed Sacrament. Terry, one of the things that the Catholic Church Tell me, has brother. been known for, I just I read a survey recently that said that that Catholic sacred buildings are the most beautiful buildings in the world. Well, that that makes was sense. A, that was a secular yeah. survey. And, see, and that's one of the ways, Terry, that we've evangelized people in the Middle Ages. And, and Jesse, that's by the, the beauty of our churches. That's yeah. the secret that we're not willing to give out. But here at Virgin Most yeah. Powerful, we're going to shout that out. Yes, Romero, what state should we be living in, brother? Live in a state of sanctifying grace. Don't live in a state of mortal sin. Okay. We're called to be great saints. Don't miss the opportunity. Set yourselves apart from this corrupt generation. Ooh. Keep your eyes on Jesus. I'm, the author and finisher of our faith. I am pumped. Remember what Our Lady said at Fatima. Souls are going to hell because no one's there to pray and make sacrifices. Yes, Eucharistic reparation for the church and for the salvation of souls, especially our leaders in our church who need our prayers. Thanks again for joining us here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. May God richly bless you and your family.